Good morning, everyone. Good morning, sir. How are you all doing? Great. Not too bad. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. First Sunday of the New Year, right? Yeah, for us. For us. So we are we are scheduled to complete Romans 11 today, and then get into just straight obedience commands after that. So no more theology. It's all uh, obey. <laughs> Pretty much after this is just pure sheer, sheer obedience. And that'll be fun. I'm actually looking forward to this next section of scripture. I thought I'd look forward most to 1 through 11, but now I'm like, wow, this next section is pretty, pretty serious, some of the implications. So how shall we now live that we understand the gospel in a richer, deeper way? And that's what's next. <coughs> Today we'll finish up looking at Romans 11 and God's plan of salvation Primarily still speaking about uh, the future state of the Jewish people, but also as well as a whole, looking at Jewish and Gentile salvation. And Paul literally kind of compares the two through a, I believe, a chronological timeline, even though we don't know those dates. But we see it happening in the language used here. We'll, we'll take a look at that. So let's begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the passage. Lord, thank you for everyone here this morning. I pray that you'd bless them in their endeavors to serve this church and obey you, Jesus Christ, with every effort and strength that you've given them, every breath that you've supplied. Help each and every one of us to encourage one another to love and good deeds and let our love be genuine from the heart and to constantly be examining ourselves and the scriptures and how we might live better in accordance with you and your truth and what you've revealed. Lord, help us to know you and to think our thoughts after you and to live our lives, our tongue, with our hands, with our feet, after you, what you've revealed to us. Let us do this, Lord, gazing upon your Son and the wonderful gospel of Jesus and how you have richly shown us mercy that we do not deserve by crushing your son on the cross for our sins and forgiving <laughs> us of sin. Thank you for that precious gift. Let it motivate us to exalt you and honor you with everything we say and do. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Romans 11. 28 through 36. Let's begin by reading. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. <clears throat> For God has shut up all in disobedience, 
so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. So let's take a look at this first half of the sentence here. Why are the Israelites our enemies from the standpoint of the gospel? And what did that allow? Yes. Remember back talking about the olive tree? The olive tree, how branches were broken off, unbelieving Israelites. And this, this tree represents covenant blessing of salvation. Israelites are enemies for the sake of the Gentiles being saved. And we'll see that down here about mercy. But it's not over yet. <coughs> but from the standpoint of God's choice, these enemies are actually still beloved. They're still beloved. There's st- God's choice is to still call them beloved. And that's for some sake. And so we're seeing here, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, Gentiles, that are being saved. But from the standpoint of God's elective choice, they are beloved still for the sake of the fathers. And so there we we see another thing that seems like a conundrum to us, like it's a disjunction. We have no pass here. We don't understand. How can that be true? Both be true at the same time. How can they be enemies of God and be loved of God? How can they not be saved right now, but God still loves them? Right? Does that seem like an impasse? Wait a second. Right? So, God can love people and not save people at the same time. But God's ultimate choice is to still call them beloved for the sake of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes. And what did God say to those men? What did God say to the fathers? Did he make a promise? Did he make a very strong promise? Well, what was that promise based upon? Was it based upon Abraham? No. Did Abraham walk through the dead animals? No. God made him fall asleep, right? And who passed through? God did. So what does that covenant depend upon? Which party? Which of the two persons? The fulfillment of the covenant promise that God made to Abraham and reiterated to Isaac and Jacob 
was solely dependent upon himself. And a part of that was actually land. And when the Mosaic Covenant came, there were further scruples and details. Not, it was, it was added onto, it, but it doesn't detract from the original first covenant. And I believe the first covenant is going to be fulfilled. The first covenant will be fulfilled in the future. In greater, in greater amount. So the disbelieving Israel is still chosen by God, God's choice to still call them beloved for the sake of his love that he set on the fathers. And uh, if, you, if you look at the fathers <coughs> themselves, God made a choice to love the fathers. Abraham was an idol worshiper in the land of Ur. He wasn't coming to God by himself. He wasn't figuring out salvation on his own. God came to him and revealed himself specially to Abraham. That was God's choice. He set love on Abraham and he made a promise to Abraham that wasn't conditional upon Abraham. And God regenerated Abraham's heart and drew him away from Ur and from his close relatives and brought him to the land of Canaan, Israel, where he made a promise that all this land will be yours and your descendants after you. And I will make you a father of many nations, meaning the Gentiles. We discussed some of that in the previous verses in Romans 11. So God's choice came to the fathers. He set his love on the fathers, and he's going to love their children, the they, because of the love that he set on them. He, he can do that. God can love anybody he wants to and save anybody he wants to. We don't, we don't serve a, a powerless God. The God that's revealed himself in the scriptures raises kings up and then destroys them. The God that we see in the scriptures created the entire universe. And just as the, uh, the doxology there at the end that Paul says, who, who's the Lord's counselor? Can anybody tell the Lord how he ought to think about things or how he ought to do things? Can anybody question his judgments or his decrees? Has anybody given to God first? Who has given to God first? No one. From him, through him, and back to him are all things. All of creation. Angels. Humans. Plants. Animals. Everything's from God. Everything was through God. And everything is back to God. For his glory. And nobody, nobody can question God. Nobody can go beyond God and... And he quotes there from Isaiah and then Job, in Job 41, when God rebukes Job about Job beginning to question God finally at the end of his life, or the end of the section of Job. Mm -hmm. Job's like, you know what, maybe, God, maybe something is wrong here. He held his, his thing with God the whole time, and then right at the end he, was like, he does, like, all of us, like Job, can finally find a breaking point in our faith and question God 
something that he does and be like, you know what, and think wrongly about something. And, and Job finally did think slightly wrong on one area. That doesn't mean that it changes everything that God said about Job. But it shows that God came down and rebuked Job for the one time that he did think wrong and began to question him at the end. And so Paul quotes that example for us. So we don't, want to, we don't want to have that breaking point, and if we do, we need to learn from the scriptures that that's not the right place to be and to question God about how he does things, why he does things. So God loved the children. They are still beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so Paul here is saying that what God promised to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, shall not be revoked. It's going to, to happen. It's going to happen. And now we're going to learn about some of that, what that looks like. And that's specifically, a part of that is, is salvation, but I believe also that includes the salvation <coughs> will in, incorporate physical blessing that was promised as well that we all get. Okay, like we're going to be physically blessed and experience wonderful tasting food, pleasures, pleasures of the flesh and of the mind, joy, emotions in heaven. Okay, the physical universe is not evil. God made that and we're a part of that. It's not spiritual versus evil. We're not Plato and Aristotle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. familiar with that. And so this is what God says. For just as you, Gentiles, once were disobedient to God. This is, this is a humbling statement. This is, once again, Paul is reiterating how disobedient we've been. This is the gospel. We have to understand that we've been disobedient to God. But now have been shown mercy and salvation. Why were we shown mercy? Because of whose disobedience? So God decided to graciously, to us, break off unbelieving Jews and be gracious to us because of their unbelief. Break them off and take us who were disobedient and come and plant us into the tree of salvation. As was previously described in the verses above. God took these disobedient people and broke them off and then gave us faith and planted us in the tree of salvation. Did you deserve that? Didn't we deserve the same thing that these people got who were disobedient to be broken off? And that's why God, and Paul says, be humble. Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. Don't have pride. And that's, that's something I've really been trying to iterate about what Paul is saying in the whole message here in, in, in 1 through 11, <coughs> chapters 1 through 11. Salvation is not of yourselves. You were disobedient in a wild olive tree, and God gave you faith, broke you off, and put you in salvation. That's the imagery the apostles use. You deserve that whole tree. All the Gentile nations that were all disobedient did not deserve faith, repentance, and blessing. We deserve to be broken off and destroyed by fire the same as these disobedient Jews did, who God did break off and we got their place. But 
So these sons of Israel who were disobedient also now have been disobedient. So their disobedient is presently still going on. Many Jews are still not believing. However, as Romans 1, or 11, <coughs> 1 through 7 shown, there's always been a believing remnant of Jewish branches that are still in the tree of salvation. During the church age, we still have perhaps thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Jews, I don't know the number, a great deal of, of Jewish believers that are part of our churches, that are part of the church of Jesus Christ. Not of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> so these also now have been disobedient. That, because of the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they also may now be shown mercy. Okay, so the salvation and the mercy that is shown to us because of this, because of the salvation and mercy shown to us, they too may now also be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience. And so, according to the context, what does this all mean? Jews and Gentiles. And that's what the all would mean at the end of the verse as well. So the term all here is qualified by context. Okay, that's important. Uh, throughout the New Testament, most of the time that all or world is used, the author is meaning because it was written to a Jew. The scriptures were, this new covenant was happening in the people of Israel, and the people of Israel were mostly closed off, and the rest of the world was not in the, the eyes of understanding of salvation. That other peoples could be corporate. Normally it's, we are a solidarity type of people group. There's salvation primarily only going on amongst us. So the idea of all in world meant other peoples. In the author's minds, it didn't mean every single individual who's ever lived. Even though it goes out to all individuals, and it's supposed to go out to all individuals. We don't have time to go into that one. <clears throat> but I want you to understand the context that the author definitely is showing here is between two groups. Now that it addresses individuals, but it's showing individuals amongst two groups. <clears throat> so God has shut up all in disobedience so that they may that he may show mercy to all, Jews and Gentiles. And this was God's plan, and that's how God, what God promised back to Abraham when he said, I'll make you a father of many nations. In time, thousands of years, 1,500 years, more. When Jesus came, and then, you know, it, it happened in little bits before that. You know, people were grafted into the Jewish nation, or... Uh, Jonah is actually, the, the Ninevites is the great example of people not having to obey covenant law in the Old Testament, but of God being gracious and saving one or two generations of Ninevites. And there were some 600,000 people they estimated in that city, maybe more. That's huge. And that God made the whole city repent. But not all the other cities and stuff around them. But he made Ninevites repent. 600,000 or more out of his mercy. 
So, God has shut up all Jews and Gentiles in disobedience. And that's what Romans 1 through 3 was especially all about. Turn with me back to 3 real quick. Verse 19 says this. Now we know that whatever Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. And so right there <coughs> Paul is saying the Jews had special revelation as we learned back in Romans 2. And in Romans 2, we also learn that the Gentiles have the law of God, the moral law, placed upon their heart and their conscience. So whether whatever law you have, Jews had both. They had the law and the conscience, and they had special revelation. But Gentiles had the, the law of God in the heart and in the conscience, which they were violating. We know that the law of God, so that every mouth may be closed in all the world, meaning Jew and Gentile in the context of 1 through 3. Paul shows how Jews have failed to obey the moral law in their heart and the moral law that is written before them that they read. And Paul shows how the Gentiles have transgressed the law and God is going to accuse them on the day of Christ Jesus and their conscience will be used to alternate between accusing them or defending them between what was right and wrong as they lived their life. But the law has come to shut every mouth, to close every mouth, to shut up mankind and show everyone how disobedient, how evil, and how wrong, and unloving, and unkind, and non-gentle you've been. And then would someone please read verse 22 to 23 of chapter 3. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace. Everyone's been sinful. And those whom God saves, he's justified as a gift by his grace. Everyone deserves hell. These disobedient Jews and those of us who are shown mercy because of their disobedience. But I'm excited because this verse assures me that God's going to save way more people in the future. This is a verse of promise to me. And I don't care who it is, whether it's Jew or Gentile. Somebody who's been disobedient is going to be saved by God. I praise God for that. I don't care what people they're a part of. Because if you go all the way back, we're all descendants of Noah. And if you go all the way back, even further than that, we all come from Adam. 
Mm. Racism's ridiculous. <laughs> if you read Genesis. <laughs> <clears throat> so, what should we do? What does Paul do in the last three verses of 11? When we behold the gospel and we look at God's marvelous plan of salvation to Gentiles and Jews, saving the remnant, saving Gentiles, and his future promise of salvation to many Jews, his covenant beloved, beloved for the sake of the fathers, when he restores and pours out a spirit of mercy, a spirit of mercy into the hearts of the Israelite people to where they call out to him, God, forgive us, and they weep over their sin. They weep over their sin, as it says in Zechariah and in Ezekiel. <clears throat> when we look at the gospel, as Paul explains some of the greater details of it in Romans 1 through 11 for us, we should simply marvel at God's wisdom, His knowledge, his decrees or his judgments and his will. We should marvel at it. A lot of people don't want to talk about Romans 9 through 11. But it's really important because it's a part of Romans 1 through 3 and 4. I think we will not rightly, fully understand Romans 1 through 4 if we do not rightly understand 9 through 11. We will not rightly understand everything that God does in Romans 1 through 4, talking about sin, talking about the cross, <coughs> and talking about faith in Romans 4, if we don't rightly understand all of his will and his judgments to bring all of this about that's described in Romans 9 through 11. A lot of people don't like Romans 9 through 11 because it overemphasizes God. And most people are not used to putting the emphasis on God's power. They're used to putting the emphasis on their own. And so that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. <coughs> and so all this means that we should worship God, be in awe at His decrees, His will, His judgment, His ways. And we should give the answer that Isaiah says. We should understand that no one is God's counselor and we should tremble and be in awe of him. And like Job, when he was reproved by God, Job retracted in dust and ashes when God showed him, I know far more things than you. And Job said, now my eyes have seen you, I repent in dust and ashes. Who can question the Lord? Who can question his ways? Who can correct God? Who can counsel him and say what he ought to be like or what he ought to do or what's just, what's fair? Job wanted to question God's fairness. The book of Job is all about, is God just? Is God fair? Is God sovereign? Is suffering fair? And God tells him, you can't know these things fully. But don't think to question me on what I've revealed in my character, in my person, and how I do things, my ways. But God did not, Job did not blame God, as we read in the beginning of Job, for his trials. He acknowledged that God ultimately sent the evil, which is interesting. Job acknowledged that evil comes from God's hand, ultimately. But he didn't blame God for it. He blamed the 
the secondary sources or causes that came, that God was behind, Satan specifically, or other human beings. We can't fully understand God's sovereignty all the time. And it's difficult. And that's actually, if you, if you read the case of Job, God takes charge of Satan, and he gives him powers, and he says, you can do this, you can do that. And there's killing and death and suffering that Job goes through. We can't fully understand that, but I think we should see that and not be like, this is unfair and question God and the way he does things or the way he works. From him, from God, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let us study the scriptures and think our thoughts after God's thoughts and correct our ways to be like his ways. Let us be humble and not challenge the Almighty, lest we be reproved and rebuked. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>